Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. July 30th, 2023, episode 226, M.A. Bound. Hello, everyone. Welcome into another edition of the Beekeeper's Corner. I'm Kevin England. Spring has transformed into summer, and it's those dog days of 80 to 90 degrees with super high humidity here in New Jersey, and that leads to sweat-soaked bee work and summer thunderstorms. These two things will play into what we're going to talk about here in this episode. So as I said, summer's in full swing, and we hope you're doing well with your bees. This is a pretty conventional time for beekeepers to be pulling their spring honey harvests, monitoring their colonies for varroa mites, and if it's your destiny, administering your treatments so that you can have clean winter bees starting sometime there in August. I hope in earnest that your beekeeping season is going well, as things are going pretty darn good here. As I prepare this episode, I have EAS on the brain. If you pick up the show on Sunday, you are probably listening to it while we and you are heading north to Massachusetts for the 2023 edition of EAS this summer. Bob Kloss and I are making the trek north, and I must admit, that I have not even looked at the show's agenda. I have been like a one-armed paper hanger lately. Uh, yeah, I have to stop for a moment and laugh because I said that at work the other day and someone asked me, what exactly is a one-armed paper hanger? And I realized that some of these things I say are so old-fashioned, they come from my mother, as to demonstrate how really old I am. So for those of you who don't understand this, the context is that a one-armed paper hanger alludes to the joke that it would be nearly impossible to hang wallpaper on a wall with only one operational arm. My coworker said, who hangs wallpaper these days? Touche. (laughs) Okay, let me take a minute to run down what we have in store for this episode. Roundtable number one, I'm running an experiment to to see how well the bees will build comb after the spring nectar flow is gone. I am all over the place today. That sounds like a good title for a beekeeping album. Didn't Earth, Wind, and Fire sing that? (laughs) After the flow is gone. Okay. Roundtable number two, I am always on the lookout for gadgets to use in beekeeping. And I have my eye on something from Ikea. Roundtable number three, something I could use right about now. A nice comfy bee bed. I'll tell you where you could find one. Roundtable number four, the idea seems cool enough to give some serious consideration. I am going to talk about neck fans. Cool enough. See what I did there? Roundtable number five, a season ago I bought a new GoPro camera. And I also purchased a newfangled magnetic mount, and I've been putting it through the test and having a little bit of fun with it. Have you ever considered filming your beekeeping inspections? Yeah, it's a little pricey, but I'm going to tell you what I'm using and that it's turning out pretty good. 
Roundtable number six, sharing an announcement for the North American Beekeeping Expo, a new conference on the horizon. And the last roundtable, roundtable number seven, a quick aside about solving a problem concerning cleaning propolis out of metal equipment. Yeah, wait, there's more. There's two topics for this episode. The first one covers a forgotten hive that made a novel attempt at solving varroa mite problems. And the second one is about our experience this week of a major thunderstorm that caused havoc on our property and resulted in the destruction of a bee tree. Of course, we'll finish the show out with a local hive report and some closing comments about the week to come. Oh yeah, that's a truckload of stuff, so we better get off and get to it. Roundtable number one, I call this one Comb Over. I'm running a bit of an experiment that is yielding some interesting results. The thing I'm looking to learn is, how well will bees build out honeycomb in the months of June, July, and August? And it should be noted that here in New Jersey, the typical thing that happens come June, July, or August is the nectar flow tapers off about the 4th of July to the middle of July. And so from that standpoint, they do not have an abundance of resources, which is the typical thing you would need for honeybees to build honeycomb. I made it a point to take some frames with wax foundation and as a side, I just generally don't use plastic at all in our hives. And I placed them above some full-blown colonies in the time frame of the spring nectar flow coming to a close. So the question at hand, and I want to know this for the purpose of instruction for both myself and new beekeepers is, will colonies draw honeycomb in the window where the main nectar flow is coming to a close? And if it is the fate the dearth setting in. And that requires a qualifier because, as I just said, typically in New Jersey we do have a down period starting sometime between July 4th and July 15th. And that'll run through into August and when the world starts to produce a fall nectar flow. The outcome, and this is not scientific, it's simply observational, is interesting. The answer is, shmaybe. <laughs> there seems to be some conditions that when taken in context of biological behaviors of the bees, some foundation was not touched, some foundation was started and is underway, and some of it's being built with a little bit of speed. Of all the frames that I put in, none of them are being built with the vigor that you would typically see in the throes of a season. When looking a little deeper, the conditions of the hives I chose belays what the bees are doing. For some of the colonies that started as a split this year, they now have a full contingent of bees being produced in the brood nest, and it adds up to a reasonable population and a mix of new bees that have activated wax glands that are being pressed into service to increase the workable space for the colony. As to the one hive that's not making any progress, the opposite is there. The hive swarmed away, 
and while it requeened itself, during the time that things got reestablished, it contracted and no new bees were being produced. And looking into the brood chamber, it now has some capped brood in play, and in short order, it might have the population that'll be suitable for doing the job, and maybe, just shmaybe, it will kick in and build some comb over the summer. But my experience is, once the window closes where they're not building comb, they generally don't start it up. And we'll learn from this colony whether that assertion is right or not. In past year observation is that these hives did not muster and basically settled on the comb that they had. Now normally what I find is bees go up into that space above the colony because all of these were placed above to take a respite and it's a place to harbor some small hive beetles and well no comb commences. Now you might be able to do a onesie twosie thing where you take some of those frames and stick them in the brood chamber. But to be clear, I'm trying to see if I can get them to draw out an additional box over top of the brood chamber. Now, even if they're not doing any activity, there's an interesting side effect is the foundation starts to show some tarnish of footprints walking on it. And, you know, if they don't build it out, and I've done this before, you end up pulling those boxes and there's a bit of, what what's the word, vestige of bees having been in there. And I would think that when you give it back to the bees in the spring to get the mission accomplished, they would actually do a better job with some of the footprint pheromone and other things that were transferred onto that comb. Now, on the other end of the spectrum is one of my eight-frame polyhives. This colony was loaded with bees, and the queen was still on full tilt to build out the colony population, even though the nectar flow was tapering off. That colony went up into each of the foundation frames and got to work. Every frame, both sides, has the center section as big as a cantaloupe started, with fresh new white protruding comb from the surface of the foundation. And in a few weeks, and with a little more push, I suspect that they will build out the cell walls from wall to wall, top to bottom bar, and so on by the end of the summer. Now it should be noted, and this is an important footnote, that if I wanted to improve their chances, I would have fed them, which by the way, I am not. I simply wanted to know where this would go if you left the bees up to it with no intervention. And if I'm being honest, I was kind of pulling for them to finish the job quickly in hopes that they will not only draw out comb, that particular eight frame hive, but possibly load it with fall honey come September time frame. You know, because one can wish for things and it causes no harm to do so. As a short aside, I shot a video of that 8-frame that I was talking about, and it's posted both to the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash bkcorner, and you'll find a video post on the BK Corner website. Uh, no, oh yeah, you know that I'm going to have a link in the show notes here. Roundtable number two, IKEA to the rescue. 
If you look at the bee catalogs, you're going to find Varroa mite devices made for monitoring mites. One in particular, Vito Pharma, manufactures one called the Varroa Easy Check. I own two of these and will state right up front that these, these do appear to be the industry standard device. If you're going to do alcohol washes, almost universally people use this exact device. Now that's all and good, but at $22, I simply cringe at why it has to be so expensive. Now, before I head off to what we're here to talk about, let me say that that is not a dig at Vito. They have, without a doubt, provided a service to beekeepers, and we are fortunate to have a capability available to us, a purpose-made device specifically made for the task, presumably by the preeminent authority in the industry, because Vito does a lot of work for beekeepers. And it also needs to be recognized that the industry segment is a low-run proposition for Vito. They have to pay up front for the manufacturing capability, which they're going to really have no choice for it to be feasible to pass along to the purchaser, given there's such a limited number of people in the world that would potentially buy one of these things. Now, turning to the subject of this roundtable, one cannot help but think out loud that sometimes devices built for other purposes could potentially stand in or be of interest in a beekeeping operation. Time for a Kevin moment. Case in point, I saw this really cool toolbox one day in a Home Depot aisle. And I wondered if it could be employed as a possible nuke box replacement. I walked over to the other aisle, pulled up a tape measure, went back and did all kinds of measurements on the tape, you know, measuring the toolbox, and then went and put the tape measure back, and recorded it all on my phone, and came home to check whether a standard Langstroth frame would fit inside the box. Darn. So close, it missed by just a skosh for being able to handle a conventional Langstroth frame. Okay, so hear me when I say this would have been one of the coolest hacks, but alas, it didn't pan out. So end of Kevin moment. But I'm always looking at other things in the world to see whether or not I can apply them for beekeeping. In that vein, what if I told you I stumbled across something that looks darn tootin'-like an easy-check device and function, and it's absolutely feasible, I think, to give it a try. And at a $1.99, this thing appears that it might be a reasonable cost, effective substitute to the $21 device. Enter the IKEA Splaterni. Yes, an odd name for sure. Splitterny, S-P-L-I-T-T-E-R-N-Y. And yes, IKEA, like the Swedish furniture company, they make a whole host of housewares in their lines. And this device is meant to be a container to place in a lunchbox for holding fruits, sliced produce, and so on for the inclusion of a healthy snack. 
The top features a dome that has a separate compartment that is meant for storing snacks, say a handful of peanuts, for example. Let me take a moment and talk about the design of this thing. The container resembles a small drink cup and it has a fitted insert that has rows of holes that would allow, in the case of what we're dreaming of, filtration of mites to pass through. Originally, this little basket design that you have to lift out of the cup and take to the sink to rinse off whatever the containers are, it's designed for carrots or fruit or whatever you plan to put in it, and I'm pretty sure it would take a half cup of bees. Now, the overall dimension of the container is 10 ounces interior, and maybe the only knock on the design would be that the top of the container, it's a little bit narrow. It might hamper your ability to pour bees in from your half cup, and maybe you're going to knock it over because it's like a drink cup. It's not wide and flat like the Vito device. The one complete unknown is whether or not the device would seal well enough to contain whatever liquid you put in so that it doesn't seep when you're shaking the container. And it all comes back to the design of the cap and how it affixes to the container. What's not clear is whether IKEA designed it so that it would hold liquids without leaking in the cup part of it. The brochures on the website show fruits and vegetables, and there's no example of it holding a liquid. But I say still, for a $2 investment, if you could run over to an Ikea, it would be worth trying out. And then, you know what? Look, if it didn't work, you could use it in your household for the intended purposes. No harm, no foul. I do have a little bit of pause in the description as it says, and I quote, the snack container has a compartment for nuts and other dry goods, end quote. But I would take that to mean that the small chamber at the top in the lid is for holding the dry goods, and it does not disqualify that bottom part to be able to actually hold liquids and not leak. I would say from a functional design, and isn't that what IKEA is all about, if you have a device that has a lid that screws closed and it's about the shape of a cup, would it not be a secondary purpose to put liquids in it and transport them in your lunchbox? Filter notwithstanding. Now, the product details indicate that the device is made from polypropylene and is dishwasher safe. If I had to venture a guess based on the appearance from the product photos in the brochure, it would equate to a material simply the same style as plastic used in a Tupperware container. And if that's what it is, I would not think that there would be any concerns for putting something like isopropyl alcohol or other chemicals in it. It's not going to melt plastic-wise. So somewhere along the line, if I ever find myself in the vicinity of an IKEA, and I'm going to have to set a reminder on my phone if car near Ikea stop and buy this thing. Isn't that a cool feature on phones? I do this all the time. Do you? I set a reminder to myself. Record video on XYZ when you get home. 
And when you pull in the driveway, a thing pops up and says, record the video. So I'll set one for Ikea and we'll see whether or not that's not going to play. Now, I'm not going to order a $2 device and pay the $6 shipping fee. Sorry. But if you happen to be near an Ikea and you want to give this a try, you do let us know how it turns out. I'll have a link to the device in the show notes if you want to take a look at what it looks like. Roundtable number three, call this one Field of Vibration. My hope is that someday we will be afforded the good fortune of traveling here and there. One of the places on my personal list is to make it to Ireland. I'm not sure what appeals to me, but I watch a cooking show that is filmed there. And as stupid as it sounds, when they show the landscape, it looks appealing. And I would be open to looking further to see what is attractive there and make a good choice to go visit. I'm gravitating toward the southern side of the country, which would be County Cork or County Kerry. Now to the point of this roundtable, it just so happens that there's an interesting possibility in County Kerry, as it's the home of Island Organics. I came across this business somewhere along the line when I saw something that I've seen in the past. Bee beds. As it goes for beekeeping, I kind of find these things a novelty. And if I'm being honest, the whole premise of them is a bit squishy, especially when it comes to the frou-frou claims that often accompany those who set these things up, bee beds. Let me not speak in riddles about what it is, and I will talk about the specific offering in the case of this particular Ireland business. If you visit the compound, my word, you could reserve a bed in a smallish cabin-style building that houses a number of beehives in its structure. It's very synonymous by just outward appearance to a Slovenian hive. It has a cabin built over a Slovenian hive and you enter the building, which of course is bee-proof for the customers on the interior, and you lay on one of the two benches provided, which has screened slats. And of course there's colonies hosted underneath the bench that you're laying on and in the walls and so on. It appears that you can reserve the space and they provide you with something akin to a yoga mat and you and one of your closest friends spread out on these benches and get horizontal over your collection of bees and absorb the vibe. Why would someone pay money to do this? I think coming back to the novelty, someone would simply revel in the retelling of going to experience this unique situation where they could tell their friends of being in proximity of a collection of bees. Not for us beekeepers, not novel, but for normal folks, this is kind of an interesting little Instagrammable moment. On the flip side, and I know some that would be in this camp personally, it might be truly one of those spiritual experiences and a legitimate means to connect with nature by the way some people move their way through this world. As to the marketing, the description runs from practical to a bit squishy. For example, I found that uh, the promotion for this particular offing says 
that it's one of the coolest things you could do for your health. Touted B-bed benefits include, this is their list, improves immune function, provided to help with PTSD, harmonizes the cardiovascular system, can eliminate pain points in the body, wings of the bees vibrate in the key of C, which helps cognitive dissonance, meditative and calming to the nervous system, purifying and cleansing the lungs. Now, some in the audience, Instagram world, and or here listening, are rolling their eyes. And a commenter on Instagram posted that, quote, this is the stupidest thing I have seen in a long time, laughing, crying, in jest, emoticon, end quote. After I finish a silent smirk upon reading that comment, I stop and say, here's where I take pause at that comment and say, well, actually not so fast. It needs to be recognized that this practice of sleeping with the bees, Kevin Mullen, I always think of sleeping with the fishes when you say something like that, is in fact, if one does some digging in the background, something that has actually been practiced since ancient times. You can go back and find, if you dig, a lot of experiences that this has been going on for a long time. Now, breaking down some of those claims, there's one slant in particular that receives a subset of notoriety from those in the know. It's the breathing the air that comes from a colony operation. I have seen several accounts of health claims that derive breathing the air that comes off of a hive operation is really very beneficial for you. In this case, you're within this closed cabin-style building, and the air has been influenced by the interior of the hives that are vented into the structure, and all the microparticles that derive from the hive operation when they settle in your lungs are purported to have some health benefit properties and I have seen advertisements for experiences where they physically attach something like a CPAP hose and a mask contraption ported into a hive interior for you to draw the air into your lungs. As a mini Kevin moment, whenever I see a photo of this, I kind of wonder about all the bee air that I have consumed over the years. How about you? Did you ever consider the possible benefits that are coming your way every time you pull the roof off of a hive? Hmm. I'll have a link to the offering at their website. And I have to admit, this is the kind of curiosity experience that I might drag Sharon to if we ever choose to go to Ireland. She is so patient with me when I build in some beekeeping pursuits as part of the plan for the places we go to. Now, it has to be said that if you happen to be in Ireland, and you're listening to this, know that they also offer other services. In browsing their website, I noticed that they offer beekeeping courses and other related activities not related to bees that you might be interested in, and it might be worth a day trip or, you know, signing up for some beekeeping training. 
And then again, if you're planning a trip to Ireland, all of this might be interest if you happen to find yourself in the land of leprechauns. Roundtable number four, yeah. Um, no, but yeah. Sometimes beekeeping can be a slog, specifically if you find yourself wearing a triple layer suit in the height of summer. I am one of those people that, I'm just going to say it, I sweat. <laughs> I am terrible. You know, you might find me out in the bee yard with my fashionable, fashionable surgeon's cap, which is another tip I've shared on the show. Those things are amazing. They both soak up all the sweat from my bald head and they have a strip across the forehead that absorbs all the sweat and for me that works perfectly because it goes right across my eyebrows and prevents everything from going down into my eyes and stinging your eyes from sweat. Now I want to turn pivot to another device I saw at a beekeeping forum that was recommended. And these things if you look for them they're sold anywhere from the really cheap ones are $10 to 20 bucks to, of course, they can cost as much as you want to spend on one. They are neck fans. Sometimes they're referred to as air conditioners. They have multiple speeds and so on. Surprisingly, when you start to look at these things, you know, the device that you might see somebody standing at a theme park or in a ball game or something like that wearing on a hot day, they have an applicability to beekeeping because they would sit on your shoulders, around your neck, inside your suit, and blow cool air up into your veil. They are USB powered with a battery, so expect it to be a little bit heavy. And depending on you and how the thing sits on your body, it may or may not fall around as you bend over to pick up or move hot boxes and things like that. But in the end, if it's Africa, Sahara hot out, I can only imagine that this thing would be a boon to your existence. The one that I saw is designed obviously for hot weather. So people are going to sweat and it's supposed to be made of silicone and be able to handle the conditions and so on. And I'm kind of thinking for 20 bucks, yeah, it's a novelty, but it might be worth considering. So I'll put a link to one in the show notes. Do I own one? No. It's just something I want to pass along because, you know, there are certain times when people say, you know what, this beekeeping thing isn't for me. It's just too darn hot. I can't imagine. We're in New Jersey. I, I, I can't fathom what it would be like to keep bees down in Texas and in Arizona and you know, even I've been in Florida where you walk outside and it takes your breath away. This thing might be, might be the, the deal maker in that capacity. So pop on over to Amazon or your favorite place to browse and look for three speeds, neck air conditioner, neck fan, portable recharger, hands-free bladeless Fan, USB-powered personal fan, 360-degree cooling, super quiet. How's that for a title? You don't have to look for it. I'll have a link in the show notes. Roundtable number five, I call this one, Oh Snap. On a lot of given weekends, we head out with the race team to go try our luck. And one of the activities in a typical 
Race Knight is strapping the GoPro to the front windscreen to capture some footage of the car running around the track. That's led me this season to get reacquainted with my GoPro that I had purchased. And somewhere along the line, the GoPro got hit by a rock and smashed and broke the screen. So I bought a replacement. And when I bought the replacement, I stumbled upon a gadget, a device. And if you know anything about me, I love magnets. I, I don't know. There's just something ever since I was a kid, I love to play around with magnets. Well, there's a magnet device that you can use that holds a GoPro and it snaps the GoPro to the backing and holds it in place. And so lately I've taken to re getting reacquainted with the GoPro and going out and shoot some video of working bees. And this is where this device, it's called a snap mount. And you could look at it at snapmounts.com. This thing has a backing plate with magnets built into the corners. And that's a free form plate. There's a matching backing plate with a connector that the GoPro connects to. You take the one plate and you put it inside the bee suit and you take the other plate and hold it over the bee suit and the magnetic draw makes them snap together. And now the GoPro is securely fastened to your body right about underneath the chin. And so I've been experimenting with this recently. And if you've been to bkcorner.org, you'll note that. There's now a bunch of blog posts with different videos because I've been out, you know, wandering around and it's really easy to just take this thing, stick it to my body and let it capture whatever is going on. I was kind of hesitant to think how well the video would come out. What would the voice sound like? Am I bouncing all over the place? But so far, if you could excuse the, you know, kind of campy version of it, it's not like a... You know, a lot of times when I've made videos of beekeeping activities, doing hive inspections and such, I haul a camera out and I set it up on a tripod and I had multiple angles and I'm blending them together. It's far too complicated. You have to produce the videos and, you know, a lot of times the battery runs out. And just trust me, it's a pain. This is easy peasy and it makes it, you know, pretty simple to pop the GoPro on, shoot a quick video, bring it in, pop the card back in and produce a video. And so snap mount has changed the game for me a little bit. I'm going to continue to experiment with this over time. And that doesn't mean that I am not going to use my other video equipment and I have a whole stash of it. Um, but I thought I would pass this on. One thing that I'll say from a beekeeping practice, if you ever had an interest of knowing what you did, this might be a really interesting way to track your motions. Now, don't get me wrong. GoPros are expensive and the snap mount device is not cheap. But if you make this investment and you put it on your body and you can record what you're doing and then watch it later and all the while talk to yourself and leave notes. So it's a quasi form of record keeping. And what's neat is when the GoPro is right on your chin, when you pull a frame out and you're holding it in front of you, the GoPro has a straight shot right at the frame. 
So that was really a pleasant surprise in watching the videos back about how well it's capturing what's going on with the bees. I'm waiting for somebody to say, you were looking for the queen and she's right there. Because in the videos, it's crystal clear. Anyway, snapmounts.com. It's a cool little gadget and it really makes an interesting view perspective of how the GoPro can mount on a suit. And you should take a look at it if that's of interest. Roundtable number six announcing the North American Honey Bee Expo. In the last episode, I shared that there were announcements going around about changes going on with the popular Hive Life Conference and the statements from Cayman Reynolds that he and his wife, Laurel, are no longer in the fold. And to expand upon that, there was a commentary that there would be a new conference being announced that Cayman and Friends would be putting on since they're no longer associated with Hive Life. The follow-up on this is, as promised by Cayman, the announcement is there. The North American Honey Bee Expo is going to take place January 4th through 6th in 2024 at the Kentucky Exposition Center in Louisville, Kentucky. If you look at the speaker list, Bob Benny, Dave Burns, Fred Dunn, Brutes English, Jeff Horshoff, Cameron Jack, Randy McCaffrey, Richard Noel, Jake Osborne, and Cayman Reynolds, along with Blake Shook, Corey Stevens, Natalie Summers, Etienne Tardif, Jose Herb, and, well, it says there's going to be more announced. And some of those names look awful familiar from the Hive Life Conference. And there are a huge list of confirmed vendors set up for the show. If you go and look at the Hive Life website, currently the registration is open, but to my knowledge, there's not a lot of information about who's going to be the 2024 lineup. There's one other consideration that everybody should kind of keep in mind if you are going to do the conference tour sometime in January is that right after this 4th to 6th time frame, with these two conferences about 230 miles apart, running head-to-head -head is the American Beekeepers Federation. If you're interested in knowing what they're doing, they're in New Orleans, New Orleans, for the annual American Beekeepers Federation Conference and Trade Show, and that's January 9th through the 12th. Those really stalwart people could go to one and then just head south and go down to New Orleans and take in the other one. I have to say, personally, I don't know if I'm going to go to any of these, but I did always have a bucket list item to go to New Orleans at some point, and I did look at their lineup, and it's rather interesting. I might find that more appealing, to be truthful. I, I don't know. There's still some time to figure out what's what, and I'll kind of wait to see what Hive Life has to offer before I make any decisions, or I'll just stay home in January and Keep warm. North American Honeybee Conference, January 4th through 6th, 2024. I don't know what the website is. You can look up Cayman on Facebook, and I bet he has 
YouTube or some other places that you can go to get more information about that if that tickles your fancy. Roundtable number seven, call this one fixed. Not too long ago, I carved off a bunch of excess wax that had honey stored in it from a violation of bee space underneath the lid of one of the colonies and gave it to Sharon to do a crush and strain extraction. Some of the wax had periphery propolis mixed in with it. When she went to do the operation, she set it all up in one of our honey screens over a bucket and let the honey drain out of what she crushed and strained. She had this sitting outside on one of the tables behind the house, and when the sun came around to the backyard, it shined on the wax, and it did help the honey fall through the screen, but it also melted the wax and, unfortunately, the propolis into the screen. So upon harvesting the honey, looking at the screen, it was paramount to ruined unless you could figure out how to unclog it of wax, which is a difficult thing to do. Enter the solar wax melter. We took the device and put it into the solar wax melter and the excess heat allowed it to liquefy and it ran away down the slope and cleared the device of wax. But unfortunately, it cemented the propolis even further into the screen mesh. So she showed me the other morning the results of the wax being removed, but now <laughs> the propolis sticky mess was intertwined with the mesh of the screen. I suggested to her that she take it, it's a flat uh, screen, about the size of a dinner plate, and set it into a device and pour isopropyl alcohol so that it sits there and soaks. And in time, that would release the propolis from it, and she should be able to either pick it up and it'll fall out or just brush it off. I hold in my hand a completely clean screen. It worked perfectly. She was able to take a brush and after a couple of little passes, push all of the propolis off of the screen. There were a couple stubborn spots where it was stuck in a hole and she would take a pin or a, I think she said she used a paper clip and just poke through them a couple times to scrape it off. But in my hand, it's a completely reconstituted ready for honey season screen that has been cleared of all the wax and propolis. So if you ever find yourself in that situation, there's a little tip for you to re uh, reuse your screen and not have to discard it because it's been destroyed from being clogged with wax and propolis. Topic number one for this episode, the Konya Hive. You got me right round, baby, right round. To start this off, I want to talk about this unusual hive that I discovered recently. But it's not to say that the hive design is new. In fact, it was something that was produced many years ago, and I'm just now discovering it. As the uh, hive design goes, this one's quite unusual in both its form factor and the fact that it was a heavily engineered piece. It is a hive designed by its creator, Laos Konya of the country Hungary. Not hungry like hungry hippo, Hungary. <laughs> the Konya hive seems to have been evolved to be marketed as a rotating brood frame beehive 
and that was at the core of its design. I'm going to talk about this in a strange way. I'm going to give you a visual that has nothing to do with the actual design, but it should give you a sense of the rotation action that was built into the hive engineering. So picture you have something roasting on a spit. The typical setup is you have two brackets on either side that hold a pole that has skewered whatever is roasting and that's attached to some sort of motor that turns the shaft or pole and the product that's being roasted over the spit on on the spit over the fire would rotate in slow motion. In essence, that's the way this hive worked, but it did not employ a technology of a center shaft and more on that in a minute. But one thing to be said about the full circular disc-like frames were that they were situated in a cylinder style and they rotated very slowly. It would be 10 degrees of rotation and the speed of the comb rotation would require a full 36 hours for the top, if you put a mark on the top of the frame, for it to go one revolution around. Why might you want to rotate your honeycomb? Well, the answer is actually in the phrase, if you listen to it closely, it's about mites. The science behind the approach had to do with the biology of varroa mites. It was believed that varroa mites would not be able to reproduce successfully due to the movement of the comb. In studying varroa back in this time, it was learned that mites are rather picky about where they feed on the actual pupa they're attaching to and where they operate, sorry, in proximity to where they defecate. It was believed that if the comb, and of course that means the cells that the bees are being developed in, was in constant rotation, it would interfere with these pursuits of the varroa mite and their ability to reproduce, and this would be the solution to the varroa mite problem. Now, given the fact that this hive is no longer being produced, or maybe it is, I'm not sure, I think you can probably tell that, for whatever reason, since we don't have, all have them, the science did not play out. And of course, if it was effective and successful, I think we would have them in our backyards. But if you know anything about me, you'll know that I love different hive designs, and this one in particular is rather unique from both its premise and the design it employed along with the fact that it happened to be engineered. Underlying the design was the notion back in the early 2000s that gravity had an impact on varroa mite reproduction. It was believed on the principles of varroa mites that they understood at that time that if you happened to shake or rotate the comb, it would, as we said, interfere with the mite's ability to reproduce or at minimum slow it down because the mites required some orientation with gravity. But unfortunately, as we have been saying, this didn't pan out. Now, putting aside the outcome, 
of this, I want to talk about the actual hive design based on a couple photos that I've seen. The brochure for the hive showed a squarish box, would be the equivalent of our brood chamber. And it was built with a compartment that had something on the right hand side for the motor to operate. Picture a spit, there's a motor over to the right that attaches to the shaft. Well, there was a, a disc space over on the right hand side with a bunch of different controls for the motor to hang out. There were nine round disc-like platters organized parallel to each other in what appeared to be like channels that contained them within the squarish box. To be more specific, the platters were about the size of, say, a large round serving plate. I want to say they were somewhere around 20 inches in diameter by just looking at the pictures. Now, to be clear, they did not appear to work the same way as a meat on a spit. And it took some time to go find the patent. And based on what I saw, the design of the outer hoop, the outside perimeter of the frame, it would be round and then it would have a little indent, a little notch. And it would go round and have a little indent and round and a little indent. And it looked like there were three or four indents. And attached to the motor was a plate at the end that supported a bunch of rods that went across and these rods indexed into the indents. And when the plate turned and the rods turned, it held the platters, if you want to see them as that. And that's how the whole mechanism rotated. There was no center shaft spit. It's kind of hard to describe. And if you're interested, I'm going to have a link to the patent where you can go see the illustrations that demonstrate how the thing was engineered. And you don't have to take my word for it. I have to say that it's a rather ingenious design, the way that it held the frames. And it kind of makes me think about how, say, the frame rests work in a Slovenian hive. They don't hang like a conventional Langstroth hive, but they more slide in and set upon the rods that hold them in place, which is also ingenious. The lower box that held what would be this brood nest contraption had a solid tap, a solid top, and in it, it had a large slit engineered in it where the bees could pass out of the chamber up into the hive boxes above it. Now, if you think about it, you have this round platter stacked next to each other in a square box. That means there's a lot of open space in there. That would be a violation of bee space, and you can imagine that while the bees would probably build inside these things, which resembled like giant Ross rounds, if you know what they look like, what happens in all the extra space? Well, the design of the interior of the box accounted for that by having recessed areas that encapsulated the round circular design. And this brood box sat over some sort of engineered bottom board from the photos that I saw. And what was interesting, and I'm not sure if I misinterpreted this, but they seem to have several of these boxes sitting next to each other. And I'm not sure if that's just the way they had them sitting 
or if there was some way that you could couple them together and run them like a horizontal hive. I, I can't be sure. The pictures were too ambiguous for me to make a judgment on that. When one contemplates this design, you might ask, well, what did the bees think about being rotated? Because, you know, in a conventional beehive, the cells are created with an upward tilt that's engineered by the honeybees. And, you know, that keeps the nectar from pouring out, going all down the face of the comb. It seems, and it was reported, that the bees somehow worked their way through this rotation, and what resulted was, by all outward appearances, natural honeycomb when they were building it. Which is strange to me, because if you think about how bees build honeycomb, they festoon, they hang from each other, and obviously gravity makes them hang down in a straight line, and from it they build the cells in front of them. But how does that work when the thing is spinning around? I, mm. So while this hive did not succeed, as you can imagine, in preventing varroa mites, it had an alternative side effect that it thwarted swarming. It's not interesting. So it is. An interesting side effect, it appears that the bees were not able to successfully conclude making swarm cells, queen cells. And I'm only speculating based on what I've read of people who assess this. Apparently, the rotation of the comb led to failure of queen reproduction, and it seems that swarm cells were removed because the queens didn't manifest inside the cells as a byproduct of being impacted from the rotation. So in some way, if you had one of these hives and you employed it in spring, it would have an impact on the biological process of swarming because no queens can be made. Now, what I'm not clear about, which is kind of strange, is bees try to make a queen cell and while it's forming, a lot of times a colony will swarm and trust that the daughter's going to come out and do her thing. So I don't know how all this reporting kind of played out. But maybe the case was is that in early days, the queen was compromised and the bees never had a viable queen to send a signal to the mother of the colony. Hey, your daughters are good to go. Let's get out of here. I suppose we will never know how many licks it took to get to the center of the Tootsie Pop because there isn't enough information hanging around about the dynamics of all of this. It was more like some summary findings after use, and then the researchers swooped in and did a bunch of evaluations. And I suppose if I dug deeper, I might find some more information. And I have to say, if anybody knows anything about this, you were around back then. I would love to hear any additional backstory, especially from someone who may have actually tried one of these, because based on what I could see, they were sold in catalogs and they were out in the marketplace for a number of years. I have to say this in reflecting uh, about this whole thing is kudos to the beekeeper. 
It appears that a single beekeeper had a vision and got this all the way through to building out a full-fledged design. It wasn't simply a prototype, but it made it all the way into production and was sold through beekeeping catalogs. And while it didn't seem to pan out, I feel for all the investment time that he sunk into this program. And that somewhere along the lines, I think others might benefit from something novel and very creative. You know, the design of this and how it worked. There's prior art there that can be referenced for future generations. Uh, yeah, in a bit of a Kevin moment, there was a previous design patent. Patented. Been a long day and my vocabulary is not very exemplary this go around. It was called the Kariga Hive. And if you happen to come across it and looked at the patent submissions, it's extremely similar in principle to the modern flow hive, but it was from way, way long ago. Now I'm not inferring that the flow hive had anything to do with the previous one, but it goes to show that creative minds may potentially hit on something that with the right tweaks could end up being a revolutionary product. And who's to say that someone may not hear this segment and go take a look at this thing and develop the hive of our future. You, you never know. End of the quasi Kevin moment. So it's a cool little revisit of a 2004 genre hive. That had some interesting premise and now appears to be a footnote in the vast sea of creativity for honeybee hive designs. You know, and before I leave this topic, I will have a very short aside about a different hive design or two related items that I wanted to mention. In researching the backstory of the hive I just spoke upon, I stumbled upon another hive called the Hedden Hive. That was from the past and found some information posted by Michael Bush on this. There was some practice in using this hive where you were flipping a box over, but I didn't get far enough down to figure out what the reasons were for this particular practice. This particular hive had its origins in, I think, Michigan in the late 1800s. And it actually had some followings in the northern states of the U.S. and Canada. I found a catalog that outlined the components of the hive as it was sold from a Canadian reseller. And in the catalog, it sold you the parts, but said if you really want to know how to use it, it suggested you could buy the hive from him, but read the inventor's book which outlined the use of the hive. That took me down the rabbit hole of figuring out what the book was called. It is Success in Bee Culture by James Haddon. And given that it was from the 1800s, that particular book is in the public domain. It's been scanned by Google and other sources. So I found a copy of it. And at some point, because curiosity killed the cat, I'm going to go see if I could figure out what the actual practice was and uncover the mystery of why you might flip a hive box and how the hive design played into what they're doing. But, you know, you have an example of 
some sort of comb that rotates once in 36 hours, and now you have beekeepers who are flipping boxes over for some sort of management practice, and it dovetails to another hive that I have seen for sale, and I'm pretty sure I spoke about this in the past. It was on display at EAS or ABF one year, I don't remember which, and it has um, what is paramount to not the most appealing description, but apt. The thing looked to be like a human coffin for a child, and it's held up by this stand that allows the hive to be rotated as part of its conventional use. You would turn the box to 90 degrees so it would lay flat and you could work the colony. But when you were done, you rotated it back to the vertical position and that's the way the colony was housed inside the box. I always wondered back then how that colony worked and could you actually have some weird impact to the bees where they built the, the cell tilting up but then you flipped the hive over. I, I never really made sense to it. I know it's odd that there are three potential designs that completely disregarded the natural orientation for the comb for reasons of some sort of management practices as designed by humans. And in that own right, I find it kind of fascinating. Just saying. I will have a handful of links to a bunch of different resources so you can go get a peek at the things that I spoke out in this topic. Topic number two, call this one microburst. I'm going to recount an event that happened the other day where some severe thunderstorms passed over our region. And as a result, there was significant damage in the community and here at home. I was at work watching the radar when I noticed a bunch of storms forming. And I got a phone call from Sharon, who was at home talking about the severity of a storm that had come through. And she told me she was fleeing the house and going into the basement for shelter. As I pulled up my radar, one of the apps on my phone and looked at it, I could see a line of thunderstorms where three major cells were passing over the house. We had nothing in Princeton where I was working and I could only watch what was going on and didn't hear from Sharon till after the event was over. She called me to tell me that the severity, severity of the storm was just incredible and that it blew the screens off of the windows. There were a bunch of broken trees and she didn't want to go outside because there was still active lightning and thunder, but the power was out. And we decided that I was going to stop and pick up a pizza on the way home so we would have something for dinner. And as I made my way home, when I got into our little local hamlet, I noticed that people were out. Power and light companies were there. The storm was over by this time. And trees were broken, lines were down, roads were closed. And it seemed to be really focused right in the area where our house is. I pulled into the driveway and Sharon had already been out into the driveway and cleared some of the bigger sticks and limbs that were on the driveway so I could pull up in through. And it was just debris and detritus everywhere. 
at some point during this time frame, my brother-in-law stopped by and he said it looked like somebody spilled salad all over the place. Every inch of the property is covered with leaves, twigs, sticks, pine cones, and things like that. Unfortunately, as I looked around, I could see that we lost a lot of trees. And it really, because um, the wind was still blowing and other things were going on, we didn't want to go out into the woods because if anything was still shaky and going to fall, we didn't want to be impacted by that. So we waited until this morning. So as I record this, it's Tuesday night at 11 o'clock. Sorry, Wednesday night at 11 o'clock. This occurred on Tuesday. And on Wednesday morning, this morning, we got up and we went outside and just took a quick survey of what we could find. I should stop for a moment and say one of the first things we did was go check on the apiary to see if any trees or problems had occurred with hives blowing over. And the fortunate thing was just standing aside and looking into the apiary, everything looked normal. On our morning survey, we noticed that we've lost over a dozen trees. And when we say lost trees, it's, <laughs> it's heartbreaking. Some of the trees are small, three, four, five inches in diameters. Some of them are 100 plus year old oak trees that snapped off. There's one particular section in the back corner of our property that suffered extensive damage. And to that end, I shot a video of what I'm about to talk about. And you could see in that video some of the few trees that were broken off and where they landed and how it looked. So as we walked up into the back of the property to survey the heavily wooded section of our yard, we could hear an audible buzz. And over by one of the hundred year oaks, there were bees flying all over the place. We walked up to the base of one of the trees and down below there's chunks, six inch by six inch, eight inch by eight inch, 12 inch by 12 inch, pieces, segments of honeycomb laying spewed on the ground along with broken parts of the interior of a tree. And there was a long leader laying out and away and there were bees flying all over the place consuming what was there. So it was apparent when you looked up that this particular hundred year oak had a bee tree in it. Walked around to look at the actual big top third of the tree that had fallen out and there's an entire colony situated right there they had comb that was four six maybe even eight foot long through the center section of the tree in multiple sheets now if you could picture the way the tree split itself it split straight down the middle almost like it got cleaved through the center and it fell flat back so that the center of the tree was perfectly facing upward to the sky, like a salad bowl sitting there. And inside of it, all the honeycomb was now laying parallel to the ground. There were about five or six long contiguous sheets, and they were all laying on top of each other, and they were laden with capped honey and ripened honey. And of course, it rained like crazy. So all of the cells that were facing skyward 
collected water. Under the weight and duress of both the impact from hitting the ground and all the weight that was in the storage of the comb, all the comb closed up any of the space and flattened out to become one big mass of wax. There's a video shot that shows what this looks like, and I'll talk about a link to that at the end of the segment. But when we discovered this, I wanted to see if maybe there was a colony underneath the cluster. I didn't do it right away when the video was shot, but I went back later and pulled the comb apart. And it was interesting. The comb had fallen with such force and veracity that it must have collapsed on impact. There were bees physically entombed between the sheets of comb in each of the layers and underneath the mass of comb as it laid inside the broken cavity of the tree. The robber bees from the property all got in and were trying to go underneath the comb and because there was wax and resources and honey and nectar all throughout. And they were pretty much cleaning it up. Now, I had to go to work this morning. I couldn't stop and say, well, maybe I could pull all these frames and do crush and strain and harvest the honey. So I let the bees have it. It'll probably take them several days to tear that entire mass apart. I did discuss with Sharon that we'll probably go up and collect at least all the wax remnants and bring them in and put them in the solar wax melter because they're absolutely beautiful and I don't want to waste the wax. But given it's the dearth, all the bees are feeding on all of the excess honey that was inside that colony. So a couple things to talk about in assessing the overall situation. I have no idea what the destiny was of the original colony. I would imagine that a lot of them died, as I described, in the way that the wax uh, trapped them, and I have no idea whether the queen is in there. Now, there were thousands upon thousands of bees flying around, robbing out all these content. The question stands, are any of those the original bees from the colony? And if they were, what's their plan after they take in some resources? There were some still flying around the tree, and my bet is they are the actual original. And I don't know if there's any of the hive left up into the top of the tree. It's hard to see that. But what happens to a colony when a tree falls and their home is no longer viable? Does the mass of the colony, if the queen is still functional, fly away and go find a new home? To that end, I was standing there looking at this and decided to go take a better look at the apiary for two reasons. One, I wanted to make sure that nothing fell over or broke or there weren't any limbs down. We took the outward look, but now I physically walked through it. And two, I wanted to see if having an open feeding event on the property would lead to the potential for bees looking to rob, incite robbing, rob the colonies. I didn't see any evidence of that. And incidentally, there's two trees dead. One of them is an ash tree that got uh, impacted by ash beetle borer. And that tree leans away from the property. 
or away from the apiary. It sits physically over and next to the apiary. And there's another one near it. Those two stood, but the healthy red oak behind it broke off about a third to a halfway down. And fortunately, it fell away from the apiary, not toward the apiary. All of the dead trees on our property from ash problems and there's some sort of blight for oaks all stood. It was only the the trees that had full canopy that were impacted by the wind and got twisted and broke and so on. So the good news is no impact to the apiary on the property. And I guess uh, they're all going to get a free lunch, so to speak. They'll clean all that up and we'll go get the wax from it. So who knew? Right? At any moment, something can happen and it makes an interesting uh, uh, exposure um, for you. And in this case, I had been around the property with a pair of binoculars looking for bee trees. I went through all the different trees looking at knots and holes and whatever. And I somewhat remember looking at this particular tree. But the way that it was situated, there's another tree in front of it. And you wouldn't be able to see, based on what I could see from the way the, the tree was designed, where the entrance would have been because the other canopy would have blocked it. Now both of those trees are gone, broken off. They're laying side by side along the back edge of the property. And the fortunate thing is nothing fell and hit the house. Nothing fell and hit the garage. Nothing fell and smashed our cars. And everything that did fall, nothing hit any of our structures. But like Superstorm Sandy, we have a lot of cleanup to do. And I'm not looking forward to that. It's one of the things I loathe about living in the woods. Um, bees are fine in the apiary. And, you know, every time we have a storm, I, one of the things I always do is go up and look to see if there's any kind of damage. Because, you know, trees fall and that's the way... It is when you live in the woods. So what an interesting event. And if you go to bkcorner.org, our homepage, and look, there's a video posted there. Or you can go to youtube.com slash bkcorner to see the video directly at YouTube. Uh, one thing to note, just as a sign, posted a lot of videos lately. I'm starting to produce them again. And I am producing them and creating blog posts for them on bkcorner.org or you can just go to youtube.com slash bkcorner and subscribe to the channel and uh, as we post videos you'll get notified. I have about four or five of them in the queue that in the next coming days and weeks I will be posting them up so there's a couple interesting topics there for you to take a peek at. Time to turn to the local hive report. For the local hive report, what I have going on right now is it's honey harvesting season. The primary thing that I've been working on leading up to it was going through each of the colonies to see how advanced they were in filling out the honey supers that I gave them. In the end, the amount of honey the hives produced is pretty lockstep with the progression of the hives as they were set up early in the season. Yeah, to expand upon that, most of the colonies coming out of winter were split as part of my swarm prevention strategy for the production hives. The logical progression is that the colonies who ended up with a queen 
built up the population and were set to make a honey crop, while the other ones had to reset with their queens and they were delayed or a little behind. When I sampled the colonies, some of them, the ones that started late, were still working on filling out some of the honey boxes, so I didn't get a lot of harvest from them. If I take two of the hives out of the mix, the lands hive, which I'll talk about in a little bit, and the Russian hive sitting on the scale, which requeened itself and had no chance of making honey this year, there were 10 hives and they produced seven boxes of honey, which is about typical for what we get every year. This does not include whatever got produced from the hives at Valley Crest Farms. I have yet to check on them. Now, a more diligent beekeeper could have probably made more honey, but I'm okay with what we ended up with, and Sharon is set to do the extraction while we are away at EAS in Massachusetts. You know, the funny thing is, and she accused me of timing this this way, this is the second year in a row <laughs> that the timing worked out this way. I kind of wish I could have waited one more week and pulled the honey when we got back from EAS so that I could help her with the harvest. But the one year we did that, we came back and the bees started pulling the honey out of the supers down in and consuming the food because it was a just one of those years. And so we wanted to make sure we got our honey crop because now we're in business selling honey on the side. And well, no wine before it's time kind of thing. But when it's time, it's time. And so I pulled it this week and unfortunately for her to do it she's going to be in the garage while we're out there as to what else is going on inside the apiary i was able to do a hive inspection for the lance hive produced a video for that which will be out on the channel you know as busy as a year that it has been this is surprisingly the first time that i opened that colony up to see what was going on with it now, I have no doubt that that colony swarmed because I did nothing to prevent that. There were at least six frames on the right side, looking at it from the front of floor to ceiling capped honey. Just full, huge frames. If you think about it, a Lane's frame is probably three quarters again bigger than a Langstroth frame. And I want to guess, as I hefted each one out, that they weigh anywhere from 15 to 20 pounds and maybe even more. I did not plan to harvest those this season. I did not want to leave empty frames, and since I got to it late, I could have pulled them and done crush and strain. But I'll wait till first thing in the spring next year and pull those frames, and then that will allow the bees to redraw those frames out and reload the comb during the spring nectar flow, which is the right time to do it. In the same vein, I decided to check on my neglected Waré hive, and to my surprise, I found it empty of bees. I will say, admitting where the world ends, I had no idea that that colony collapsed. I can only venture a guess that it swarmed somewhere early in the season and failed to requeen itself, and in it self-destructed without me paying any attention. I am usually not that inattentive to what's going on in my hives. And I have to tell you that fooled me. I did peek in through the windows every once in a while 
just to see if there were bees and what was going on. And I should have caught on to it because I put a box on top in anticipation of colony growth and they never touched it. And dummy me, I kept looking in the window and saying, that's really weird. So last week, I went, pulled that box off the top and started to dig down with the anticipation, how oblivious I am, that I was going to put it somewhere in the middle of the stack or pull up some frames to put in it to see if I could entice the bees to do it. And lo and behold, the thing was empty. And I guess what I was witnessing from the coming and going is other bees from the apiary robbing it of any vestigial resources because when I broke it down, it was empty, empty. There was no nectar stored in there. There was no pollen stored in there. There was no evidence of brood. So now the task at hand is to find a way to protect the honeycomb and all the work the colony did from the moths this summer. And well, that task is going to have to wait until I get back from EIS. So there is one more thing I want to mention, and it has to do with replacing the honey supers, the ones that I took off to harvest, with boxes that have frames of foundation. It's an odd thing to do, but a tactic that I try to do every year. And let me explain what I'm talking about. On an example, my top bar hive is not a conventional top bar. The top bars are not tight together. They're Kelly F-Frame Langstroth. I built a box from scratch with this idea in mind so that I could put medium honey supers over it. At some point, this box used to be three medium honey supers sitting long ways long, if that makes sense. And, 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 and three honey supers. It was too big. The brood chamber was too big and I could not, after a couple of years, get that colony to work. So I brought it into the workshop and cut a third of it off. So now the dimension where the bee's nest is, is two Langstroth mediums long, sitting long ways end to end. If you think about it, when I pulled the two honey supers off, I put two honey supers back to mediums with just frames of foundation. The logic of this tactic is twofold. I wanted to give a place for the population of the colony to hang out. If you think about pulling those honey supers off, they were full of bees. And now that's gone. Those bees would have had no choice but go down into the main nest of the hive. And the hive was already bearding out front as it was. So now that they're gone, what is a good way to rectify that. It's to put some supers back on top. Now, maybe it's a misnomer to call it supers because I don't have any drawn comb to give them. So I put in foundation. It gives the bees some real estate to come up in to that space and hang out. And good for me. While they're up there, they could do a little bit of work to start drawing out the honeycomb. So it's kind of a win-win. Will they draw the comb out fully? Some years they do, and other years they don't. I, I don't know what is the driver. I mean, I understand, you know, back to round table number one. 
I understand the dynamic of what is required. I will say one thing about this tactic is the wax foundation that I use, I don't use plastic, because of the heat, given it's July, has a strong enticing odor that I personally believe motivates the bees to build out those frames. So dovetailing on round table number one, there are times when bees will draw comb even if it's at a glacial pace. And I might as well take advantage of the labor that's available with the large workforce that's in these colonies. So there's a couple other things floating around in my head, but you know, I'm gonna leave it here and just say out loud that for me, pulling the honey boxes in summer triggers me to start thinking about fall preparations. And I guess it's just the natural progression of things. Local Hive Report, check. Well, it's time to close the episode down and get out of Dodge. Uh, a couple things to talk about real quick before I head north. The Warren County Fair is going on near Phillipsburg, New Jersey. This is uh, Northwest New Jersey, one of two fairs that we typically participate in. It's going live this weekend and into the week. This is the second year we're going to miss it, as now it seems to collide with the EAS schedule. Bob Kloss and I usually partake in that and do bee demos and sell honey and such. I guess we'll have to settle on our participation at the Hutterton County Fair. You know, much of what has preoccupied me this year has been creating the content for the Managed Mentoring Program. I am currently authoring, producing lesson number 39 of 43 to come this year, which means I'm in the home stretch. I fell behind some in July, but in my head, I'm catching up and still hanging tough. As of late, I completed a few of the lessons that have been missing and... At the time you're listening to this, they will be posted. We're in the stretch where we are counseling our mentees about summer activities that dovetail into fall. There have been a handful of mentor visits that I've participated in and phone consultations that have taken place along the way. It's been a pretty active year in supporting the new beekeepers in this region, and I have to say that each time I encounter someone who's in the program, I'm getting really good feedback as to how it's helping them progress through their seasons. If I quietly stand back at this point and assess how things are going, I'm really happy with the progression of the program, and it motivates me to stay strong and finish out the year as it's scheduled. So EAS Massachusetts, I am not presenting this year, but I'm helping with the administration of the field test for the Master Beekeeper track. I have to say that I am very much looking forward to the people interaction this year. Bob and I are staying in the dorms and I can only imagine we'll be hanging out with all the peeps. And so I look forward to a week of unplugging from my day job. I can't hardly think of a better way other than maybe spending a week of vacation with my family to get away from the normal everyday runaround if you're there, come and say hello. And I do know that EAS has made a provision for me to do a live show 
at some point during the week, which reminds me, I guess I'm going to have to prep for all the gear that has to be set up. So I guess I should sign off here and get to work. And I hope that we're going to see you at the show. And if so, make sure you make it a point to stop and say hello. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we can accomplish great things. Be well, everybody. <laughs>